Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here, my guest in the studio today. Jeff Isaac, he's a professor at the Indiana University Department of Political Science. Thanks for being on Big Talk. Thanks for having Jeff. me. Jeff Isaac is a guy who uh, has a presence on social media. <laughs> that is true. I have a feeling there's a red face coming up here. <laughs> Not from me? Yes, from you. Are you ready? Have, I'm going to quote. Hacked into my emails? I'm going to quote from you. Quote from me. <laughs> Donald Trump is a <laughs> red face. Why? <laughs> I mean, if if we talk about him long enough, I might get angry and then get a red face. He is a. <laughs> You're a professor of political science at a at a state university. How can you be speaking like this? Uh, because I want to. <laughs> because I, I I exercise the freedom that I possess in this country. There are actually, it raises some serious issues um, at, that, that are perfectly consistent with everything I just said. There are some, uh, some academics who have gotten in a lot of trouble at their universities for tweeting or making statements on social media that are very provocative, perhaps incendiary. Quite honestly, the, 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 the ones that I'm thinking of were much more... Uh, maybe threatening or something mm -hmm. than calling Donald uh, Trump a But they share in common uh, the fact that they're using a, not only a non-scholarly way of talking, but um, kind of emoting, um, expressing strong opinions in a way that is very different than the way I express myself when I'm publishing, mm -hmm. writing essays for journals. Even on Facebook, I often post kind of like essays I regularly write for a blog called Public Seminar in which I address, I think, serious political issues in a serious way. But on Facebook, there's a whole other thing that's going on. People are posting stuff about what they ate, the music that they like, how they feel today, what the weather's like, and, you know, cursing at a neighbor for making noise mm -hmm. or saying that Donald Trump is a which I'm often moved to say. <laughs> Would you consider yourself a First Amendment absolutist? N no, but because I, I don't really consider myself to be an absolutist about anything. Mm -hmm. um, are there limits to freedom of expression? Of, of course there are. I mean, I think that's the conventional understanding of most constitutional lawyers. I think they're, it's very hard to be a, a First Amendment absolutist, but I think the First Amendment is a very, very important um, amendment, mm -hmm. uh, constitutional principle, and freedom of expression should only be abridged under the most extreme circumstances and in ways that can be um, revised, um, contested. Um, no one ought to have a monopoly of expression in a free society. All right, I'm going to uh, uh, make a theoretical case here, and let's say I come to you and I've got a petition, and I say the uh, American Nazi Party is going to march through the Indiana University campus, and one of the leaders is going to speak. And uh, we have this petition saying we don't want it to happen. Will you sign it, Jeff? Oh, absolutely. You will sign it. 
course I will. You don't want them to speak there. That's right. Okay. I don't want them to speak anywhere. Mm-hmm. Now, should they have the right to speak in a public place? Uh, probably yes, consistent with uh, public safety requirements or there are notification requirements for certain kinds of demonstrations. Uh, probably yes. Um, it, unless, of course, what's going on is literally the provocation of violence, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a clear and present danger to the safety of others. A university campus, I don't think, I understand that Indiana University is a public university, but I don't, uh, and I understand also that this is a complicated matter of the law. Right. But universities are different than public streets. Um, they are institutions that have certain um, uh, conceptual and actually physical boundaries, which is mm-hmm. why, for example, IU police uh, is on has has authority to enforce law on campus, and universities are learning communities, and they have dis- there are certain distinctive values attached to them, and certainly the presence of uh, Nazi demonstration on campus would be very disturbing and literally threatening to many people. Yes, I would I would certainly sign a petition like that. Would I sign a petition demanding that Charles Murray be refused of uh, the right to speak? No, um, I. Do not think that it is either wise or right to uh, deny someone like Charles Murray, which is not the same thing as a neo-Nazi demonstration, um, and it's uh, some it partly has to do with the freedom of speech, even of people who I regard not only as political opponents but as kind of politically despicable, and in some ways, um, I would say that their uh, rhetoric is racist and um, hateful, although I, I'm hesitant to call it hate speech. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's in the case of Charles Murray, it's less a question of his right than it is the right of uh, colleagues on campus to invite him if they choose to, or the right of students on campus if it's a bona fide student group. It's not clear that it was a bona fide student group in this particular case. But I do think people on campus have a right to bring speakers. And uh, the the the, the speak there there are certain limits to it, I think what ought to be done on a campus, but I don't think the speaker the speech of a controversial uh, writer uh, is something that poses a clear and present danger um, to people on campus. Jeff Isaac is uh, speaking of speaking. He's well spoken, and he's got some bona fides. He has uh, written for the Nation. Descent Magazine, The American Prospect, a number of books he's put out, uh, topics including The Meaning of the Eastern European Revolutions of 1989, uh, Hannah Arendt, Albert Camus. Yes. You've written books on political theory and power. You've edited an edition of The Communist Manifesto. It's funny because... um, on the cover of the book, it says Marx and Engels, The Communist Manifesto. And then underneath it, it says, edited by Jeffrey C. Isaac. <laughs> and my father, when I gave him this book, he said, I don't understand this. This is The Communist Manifesto. It was written by Marx and Engels. Like, how is it that you are the yeah. editor of this? It's done. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I explained to him. I explained that I actually did some work to justify having my name on, on the cover of that particular volume. <laughs> on Big Talk, we like to get to first questions a lot. Yeah. What does the term liberal mean today? So, 
there is this idea. I sense exasperation here. No, no, here. it's great. <laughs> it's great, but I just need to say, because you're, I'm here and you're asking me these questions. There is this idea, which actually is traced back to a philosopher named W.B. Galley. Uh, the, it's the idea that, the idea is that there are many concepts, in fact, m most concepts, maybe even all concepts that are important uh, in social inquiry and in political inquiry are essentially contested that these concepts have multiple meanings, that, uh, in fact, they're heavily invested by many different constituencies, and so they're difficult to define. Uh, liberalism is certainly a, a, a deeply contested uh, concept. Mm -hmm. it, it derives from the idea, uh, the French idea of libra or liber in, in Latin, the idea of freedom or to be liberated, um, and liberalism historically has been associated with um, a liberation from, um, let's say, uh, the privileges of the old order of feudalism, religious establishment. But today, I think um, liberalism means many things to many people. And uh, for, uh, in, in American public discourse, mm -hmm. uh, it has often become used as a, a, a kind of epithet or yeah. term of uh, abuse. And what's fascinating is that even people on the left today are using it as an epithet. That, that, that is fascinating. Um, it's also true, I think, that um, many, look, the, the, there have been forces on the left that, ha, that have always been anti-liberal. Mm -hmm. uh, in some ways, it could even be said that Marx and Engels were anti-liberal. Hmm. So I think that... Um, it's not so surprising to me that that certain individuals or groups that identify as being on the left are anti-liberal. Um, it's also the case that on the right, being anti-liberal has become almost like uh, de rigueur. It's, uh, yeah. it's essential to, to disparage um, liberalism. Mm -hmm. The more interesting thing is that is how many liberals, I mean, people who are not really on the far left and they're not on the right, but they're, they're reluctant to use the term uh, um, liberal or liberalism, and how widely the term neoliberalism has also become mm -hmm. uh, a term of abuse. Um, neoliberalism, I think, does not mean quite the same thing Right. As liberalism does, but both of both of these terms are terms that I think are under a, a wide, let's say, shadow of suspicion. Um, for much of my political life and my academic career, I thought of myself as not a liberal, not never an anti-liberal, but not a liberal. I thought of myself as a Democrat with a small d, yep. or a radical Democrat, or a democratic socialist. There are different terms that, I, but I was resistant to the term um, liberalism. Um, that started changing actually after 9-11. Huh. And, and um, for me now, I actually embrace the term liberal. Um, m most of the, the positions that uh, are attributed to liberalism by people on the left and people on the right with whom I disagree, um, I, I embrace those positions, okay? So, uh, for example, just as one example, I'm very happy that Macron won the French presidential election, mm -hmm. even though he's not really a man of the left. Right. Does that make me a liberal? Because I am opposed to the neo-fascism of Le Pen, and I regard that kind of right-wing authoritarianism as the primary danger. Yeah, it makes me a liberal. 
Um, if you believe that Macron shouldn't have been supported because uh, uh, neoliberalism is just as bad as neo-fascism, and if you believe that, in fact, there should have been abstention, or which is uh, what uh, the supporters of some of the supporters of Melanchon uh, said, um, then you're not a liberal. You're an anti-liberal. Fine. Yeah, I disagree. So I'm happy to 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 embrace the idea of liberalism because it is really under siege now. Mm-hmm. Labels galore. Now l- let me ask you this: You had supporters of Trump. You had supporters of Sanders. Any similarities? If, uh, yes, there are some similarities. Um, first of all, during during the entire campaign. I was writing constantly, both on this blog, a public seminar, on Facebook, and a couple of other venues. So, I mean, I, I wrote about this a lot. There are some similarities. The differences, though, are profound. And I, I think that uh, if we treat Sanders as an example of left populism, and we treat Trump as an example of right populism, uh, there are liberals who say that populism is bad, all populists are bad, all populists are equally bad. I am not such a liberal. Uh-huh. Um, S- Sanders uh, is an avowed democratic socialist. Um, it is true that uh, many of his supporters um, were not, both rhetorically were anti-liberal or were, uh, and were strongly against, let's say, the preferred candidate of self-identified liberals, wh- who was Hillary Clinton. But Basically, they believe in constitutional democracy. They may believe in certain kinds of redistribution of income. They may believe in single-payer health insurance. Uh, They're they're, they're within uh, the political discourse of liberal democracy. Uh, I think Trump's rhetoric is not within the political discourse of uh, liberal democracy, and many of his supporters embrace that rhetoric. um, Trump, I think, is incredibly dangerous to liberal democracy. Um, Now... That's not to say that in power, Trump has instituted a fascist regime. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I've been engaged in some kind of uh, interesting debates uh, in the blogosphere and on Facebook with other people on the left, people who do not think of themselves as liberal, mm-hmm. people who disparage liberals and who implicitly disparage, disparage me, right. um, who argue that all this stuff about Trump being an authoritarian is kind of hyped. And, you know, the truth is Trump isn't really such an authoritarian, and um, Trump really isn't so different than uh, if, what any uh, uh, elected leader in the United States of either party would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, this viewpoint is often made often presented by people who really opposed Hillary Clinton and said it doesn't matter between Clinton and Trump. Right. Uh, and I think that um, I think that view is unfortunate. It's wrong. Um, Trump has authoritarian dispositions. Trump has done authoritarian things. Trump employs an authoritarian rhetoric. And Trump poses a real danger to liberal democracy, in my opinion. Do the people have a collective wisdom? No because I am not a populist, while I don't disparage all kinds of populists, I don't know what the people are and what collective wisdom uh, is. Now, now there's a certain line of argument that actually goes back to some readings of Aristotle uh, that basically says um, there's wisdom in common sense. Uh, Ordinary people have a certain kind of basic wisdom. 
Um, the, the general sense of ordinary people is perhaps to be trusted more than um, the dispositions of elites. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree with that. That's a basic, let's say, presumption behind democracy as a form of government. But I don't think there's a unitary people. I don't think that the people uh, are a single thing, that everyone who is part of the people agrees. Um, I don't think there's any particular opinion that could be described as the wise or right opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, Public opinion is a constantly shifting thing. Um, It needs to be constantly up for grabs. So I'm suspicious of this idea of the people and of the collective wisdom of the people. And this rhetoric tends to be mobilized more by people on the far right who, uh, who like Trump, for example. I mean, this was the rhetoric of his uh, uh, inauguration speech. The people chose me. I alone represent uh, the people. Mm-hmm. And implicitly, um, anyone who doesn't agree uh, with me isn't really part of the people. They need to either shut up or leave right. or I won't let them in. And, you know, I mean, there's a history of that kind of argument on the left, too, particularly in, in the communist world. I, I don't I don't uh, I don't much care for this way of thinking. Now, you have said in the past that uh, it, it's important for political scientists, professional, academic, pro- political scientists to connect with the outside world. Uh, is that happening? Yeah, it is happening. Um, I think it's actually happening more now than it was 20 years ago, part of or 25 years ago. Part of that is is digital communication, social media, the development of a wide range of really terrific blogs that feature the accessible writings of political scientists who are increasingly encouraged to uh, to uh, write up their research Mm -hmm. in ways that are broadly accessible. I have a sense that there was once a young guy, Jeff Isaac, (laughs) in New York City. There was. That's true. Standing on the street corner with his buddies, talking about this and that. Yeah. Maybe politics. Sometimes, maybe, but not so much. Well, let's see. I, I figure you grew up in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. And, and the early 70s. People were talking about politics. There was Watergate. There was Vietnam. There was civil rights. Vietnam, uh, Watergate was the thing for me, Yeah, actually. I came a little too young for Vietnam, civil rights, mm-hmm. and the new left. Um, a couple of my friends who were uh, uh, either more politically enlightened than me or cooler than me <laughs> kind of were involved in some of those arguments, but I wasn't. Um, I I became interested in politics during the Watergate period. Um, it was really only when I entered Queens College in the mid-1970s that I really became interested in politics. At, um, but the like, I, I think th- that Jeff Isaac that was on the street corner like or hanging out was mainly playing stickball or playing basketball. You know, I, I, I'm I'm smelling, seeing, <laughs> hearing New York. Totally, yeah, Queens, Queens, Queens. Yes, and you know that guy never thought he would be an academic. And I, if we went back to that guy, it would be absurd. He would be laughing at the thought that he became you know, professor, like professor Isaac. Yeah, imagine that. <laughs> well, what did you want to be? I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Huh? And you know, and I was a I was a I was a good. St- student. I was a very good student in, in history. But like I wasn't really so academically 
oriented. I mean, I, I, as a teenager, I enjoyed the things that teenager, uh, uh, teenagers like, and particularly for me growing up, it was sports. Yeah. I mean, yeah. not organized sports. There was some organized sports, but it's mainly like, it's not like it is in Bloomington where there are a million clubs, places that you, that you drive to. I mean, I played on the street and in the playgrounds with my friends. Yeah. Basketball, football, stickball, softball. Um, that's, and that's mainly what I was interested in doing. You know, I, at a certain point I became interested in girls. That's another thing. But, um, <laughs> you know, I watched TV. Uh, you were an average guy. I was a very, yeah, I think so. But you're not now, I'll tell you that. Uh, I don't know. I'm still in some ways an average guy who does, a, a, maybe I do non-average things. Any brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have a brother named Gary who's three years younger than me. He's 57. What does he do? He is a lawyer in um, Chicago. Um, he actually is a corporate lawyer, but he has done tremendous amounts of pro bono work. And he was part of the so-called uh, uh, Guantanamo Bar. Hmm. Uh, he represented many. Um, uh, he wrote pro bono briefs and was very involved in representing uh, Gitmo detainees. Mm -hmm. um, when uh, He was actually a big supporter of Obama in 2008. Um, his wife, my sister-in-law, Tony Gilpin, and he knew Obama before Obama became famous as Obama, supported him, raised money for him. Um, and Gary was actually part of uh, the working group that uh, kind of, let's say, proposed policies with regard to closing, closing Gitmo mm -hmm. when Obama was elected. My brother became quickly disenchanted with that and with Obama more generally. Also... You tickle those keys occasionally. You are a jazz keyboardist. I, I am. The postmodern jazz quartet. Yeah. Who's all in that? It's this. <sighs> Another difficult one for it, you. It here. is difficult yeah. right now. I mean, so the band was started by uh, my colleague and friend Jonathan Elmer and I, who teaches English at IU. Mm -hmm. And. Um, the original members of the band were Jonathan and I and Dan Deckard on drums and Ron Kadish on bass. And then Nate Johnson joined us on sax. And then Pat Harbison joined us on trumpet. And Rebecca Fagan sang with us for a while. So we, we, we played for a while as a septet. Uh, then we played as a, a sextet. Uh, we played as a, a, a quintet. Uh, right now, for a variety of complicated reasons, uh, the only people who are who the only person who is regularly playing with me consistently is Pat Harbison. The postmodern jazz quartet now consists primarily of me and Pat Harbison. Jeremy Allen usually plays bass, but sometimes uh, he can't make the gigs, and other people, Hannah Marks or other people, sub for him. Um, Chris Parker often plays drums with us, but sometimes Dan Deckard plays drums with us. The one person, really, who's always been in the PMJQ consistently is me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, that's partly because a lot of other people have other musical projects. This has been, I mean, and, and for me, this has been my thing musically. Um, but I think that, that the band kind of has an identity of its own. From the very start, we joked about the fact that by, uh, people would say, what, you play postmodern uh, jazz? And we would say, no, we play modern jazz, but 
we're a postmodern quartet in the sense <laughs> that there's a shifting number of people associated with us. There's no fixity in, in our identity as a quartet, and that's always been true. There's a kind of music that we play. We play basically kind of post-bop jazz, and um, I think that the band has an identity regardless of who's playing in it. Um, and that's a, been a great thing about the band, and I think it's why we've consistently had regular gigs like f for the past 10 or so years. Um, Where can we see you? The only place that we're regularly playing now, which is a terrific place to play, is C3, which is in, in Renwick. Was the uh, stickball kid playing piano? Oh, absolutely. But the stickball kid, first of all... <laughs> The stickball, stickball kid took classical piano lessons and learned a ton, but hated to practice. <laughs> um, and the stickball kid, for the first two years that he took piano lessons, I guess starting when he was eight, uh, he didn't have a piano. So a neighbor, a terrific woman named Bella Goldman, she used to let me come into her house and practice the piano. And what I would do is go in there and basically sit around there and not practice the piano <laughs> and then come, like, come home and tell my mother that I practiced the piano. I was there. <laughs> <laughs> but I was always playing the piano, and I, I loved the piano. And I, I've particularly always loved uh, improvisational music. Um, I'm not big on um, composed music, although I do compose some music. Or, and, and while I can read music, I'm, I'm a terrible sight reader, and I've pretty much always played by ear. Mm -hmm. um, but I was always playing piano since I was eight. When you get back into your car after we're finished here, what are you going to listen to? I have uh, a, a terrific CD that I've been listening to actually for years. It's called Quintessence. It was one of the last recordings made by Chet Baker before he died. Mm. Chet Baker basically played a lot throughout Europe and particularly in Stockholm um, with Stan Getz, who he had played with many times in his career and a rhythm section of Jim McNeely on piano, who's terrific, uh, George Moraz on bass, and Victor Lewis on drums. I listen to that a lot. I sing along with the solos on that album, and I've been working on some of those tunes. I'll probably listen to that. You know, that's interesting. Stan gets one of my favorite discs, and it's practically worn out that I have now as a compact jazz disc uh, with Stan Getz and Astrid Gilberto. I, I love that. It's fantastic. That, it that's, is. Yeah. You know, that's what made Stan Getz famous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Stan Getz is, I think, one of the great jazz musicians who kind of crossed over into another uh, genre. And some of the tunes, some of the bossa nova tunes that he recorded, like A Girl from Ipanema, really became kind of hits beyond yeah. jazz. You know, Stan Getz also was like a major uh, bebop and then post-bop uh, saxophonist. Um, he was one of the important figures in the so-called cool jazz movement. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting to me about him is that he employed a number of great pianists as his sidemen. Chick Corea played with him. And I, I just mentioned uh, 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 Jim McNeely. Actually... Uh, one of his sidemen was a guy named Andy Laverne, who actually I met last year at the Jamie Abersole Jazz Camp in Louisville, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And Jamie's a, a ter uh, uh, Andy is a terrific pianist, very well known, very well recorded, and we became friends. And actually, I take FaceTime piano lessons with uh, Andy Laverne now. Um, he's a terrific teacher. I love working with him. Um, so, you know, Stan Getz has had many interesting uh, bands over the years. 
Jeff Isaac. He's a professor at the Indiana University Department of Political Science. Thanks for being we're really, on Big really, Talk. You're, we're done now. We're done. You want anything you else? You got nothing else to say? I got nothing else to say to you. Why, why are you doing this, Michael Glavin? I'm this cutting this off. We're done. <laughs> no more. No more.